And so this week we're going to continue in, in uh, Matthew, looking at chapter 17, looking from the first verse to the 13th. So we're looking at Jesus Christ's transfiguration on the mount, according to Matthew. Uh, so please stand with me to read the word of God. We stand for a couple reasons. One reason because it is a sign of God moving in and through us, and also because these are God's words. They're holy, they're reverent, so we stand in that reverence of God. Matthew 17, 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, we come before you this morning longing to learn more about you. We're longing to learn more about your true character, your true essence, your true being, and we don't want our own thoughts of who you are. We want to know you for who you really are. So I pray that this morning as we look at the transfiguration that we can learn more about you, that it will motivate us to continue to grow in our faith. Open our ears right now, open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us understand, help us see, help us know you a little bit better this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, I've often hinted at or brought up stories about one of my journeys from about five years ago as I took a motorcycle trip around the western part of the country with two friends. Um, it was something that I had always wanted to do, this, uh, this journey of sorts, as I shared when I built a mini bike with my dad as a little kid. I always had a dream from that point on to be on two wheels and a motor and drive around the country. Uh, my dad had done that when he was a kid, well, when he was younger, I should say, and, uh, and I always wanted to do it. And my brother went on this trip in a 1972 Toyota pickup truck all around the country, and that was also motivating, and it made me want to do the same thing. Um, and I talk about this time, it comes up often because it was one of the best times of my life, maybe the best time of my life. And I didn't go just to see the United States, I really went because I wanted to fall more deeply in love with Jesus. And I saw Jesus everywhere on that trip. Romans 1.20 just kept coming to mind, that God reveals himself through his creation. And so through people that I met and interacted with, people, God's creation, I was seeing characteristics of God. Maybe it was from a free breakfast that somebody gave us outside the Grand Canyon. 
Or maybe it was the guy that came and took our motorcycle that we had put next to a shop for the next morning, and he told us it was a crime-ridden street to get stolen. So he put it in his shop, and then he let us pitch his tent in his front yard. Why would he do that? Amazing. The only reason that happened in the first place was because a tire had popped leaving Mount Rainier. We had nothing to do. We found a couple that had just, made, uh, had just pitched their tent in the park, and they decided to drive 80 miles out of their way to take our motorcycle there to get it fixed. It was crazy. There's no reason those things should have happened. And people were just always blessing us. And through God's creation, through people, we were able to see, I think, a little bit more of God. And it doesn't, wasn't just people that we saw God, but it was actually his creation. And I think a lot to a couple of the climaxes of hikes that I went on. Um, at Zion National Park, if anyone's been there, Angel's Landing, or at Yosemite National Park, Half Dome. These were two hikes that were absolutely incredible. Zion, Angel's Landing, there comes this point, standout point, where most people turn around because after you go past that point, uh, it's very steep falls to your death. It's very narrow pathways, and there's little cables to hold on so that you won't fall. Um, but when you get to the top of that half-mile stretch, it's incredible. Or even at Yosemite, when you're at the ha- top of Half Dome, the last few hundred meters, you're holding onto cables, and there's little wooden slabs at the bottom because there's no way to get up if you don't actually have equipment. So you pull yourself up this cable, and while we're going up that, one of the supports that was holding the cables snapped and was just dangling the rest of the time. And uh, We got to the top, and by the time we got to the top of these places, to look out in Utah's valley from Zion or to look out at Yosemite at California at the valleys and the cliffs and the ravines to be on top is belittling I mean any sort of thought that God might not exist dissipates when you're up there when you're in this beautiful majesty of a mountain on top when you have this experience realizing that you are so small and that there's no way this came from nothing that it was actually created And seeing that creation, again, gave me a little better picture of Jesus and God and who he is, able to see that beauty. And I, like Peter, wanted to just build a tent there and just live there on that mountaintop, have that mountaintop experience and never leave. I didn't want to go back for my last year at university, my last year of soccer, my last year before I needed to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to face that reality. I just wanted to stay on the mountain. But the mountaintop experience can't last forever, and it shouldn't. God gives us these mountaintop experiences, not all the time, but he gives us these mountaintop experiences sometimes, and I'm increasingly thankful for them. Those times when he speaks so strongly to us that the only emotion that we have is overwhelmed because it's peace and it's love and it's joy, and you don't know what to think as you listen to a sermon or you're at a retreat or a conference or you're on a trip or you're climbing a mountain. This happens. We have these mountaintop experiences, and it's good. God gives us to some of these, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. He gives us these experiences because on these experiences, we can build up the kingdom of God. Peter is one of the three that is on this mountaintop with James and John. And it's this experience that led him to write what we read a couple weeks ago, 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He was an eyewitness on this mountaintop. And our mountaintop experiences that we have are motivating for us in our faith. They help us grow in our faith and our knowledge of God. 
It makes us want to just live on that mountaintop forever. And someday we will. Someday we will be in heaven with God and that mountaintop experience will never end. But in the meantime, we have this thing called life that gets in our way. And anything this side of heaven, this earth is going to be broken and we cannot live on that mountaintop. But we should always pursue God for that mountaintop experience. This morning, the text is showing us the ultimate mountaintop experience that Jesus saved only for a few of the people that he had already chosen. Only a few of the disciples experienced this. And this connects to the last verse from last week, Matthew 16, 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. We didn't actually break this verse down last week in anticipation of looking at it this week. Some people have taken this verse kind of as a reference um, to seeing the church formed, how the church formed, or maybe some people have seen it as being John who outlived all the other apostles. Uh, Maybe he saw the church and that's what Jesus was talking about when he says the son of man coming into his kingdom. But most people, when you look at the other accounts of this event from Mark and Luke, Mark 9, 2 to 8, Luke 9, 28 to 36, these accounts, just like we see in Matthew, are preceded by these same words, Jesus coming into his kingdom. Nothing else is shared between Jesus sharing coming into his kingdom and the transfiguration that happens on the mount. And so these are connected. Most Bible scholars, most people are not connecting these two as being the one and the same. So keeping in mind this mountaintop experience, we're going to look at the text this morning, three different segments, the first one, verses one to three. These record the event of the transfiguration itself. Secondly, we're looking at verses four to eight. That is Peter's reaction and a divine response to Peter's reaction. Then the third part, verses nine to 13, we see Jesus and the disciples' conversation. Again, verse one, on the account of this event of the transfiguration itself, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So the dialogue that we get to later from God, from Jesus, from the disciples is significant, but the situation here is also important. We can't overlook what is actually happening here, the timing of it. It was six days that there is no account, that there is silence. Luke says that there's eight days, but there's seven nights, so it's six full days, eight days, seven nights, and there's nothing else recorded. There was seemingly silence before Jesus appeared in all his glory. There's also referenced in Revelation 8.1, where there's a half an hour before Jesus appears in glory of silence. And it might seem silent in Cleveland. It might seem like God is not here, but things will change. The glory of Jesus is going to be, is going to be revealed in this city. And the city will prayerfully have a mountaintop experience of its own. And prayerfully, we will be a part of seeing that happen. Next, we see the ones that Jesus chose to be with him. He's choosing them, and he's not choosing everybody to have this experience, to witness him. He's choosing three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And why did he choose these three? Are they more special than the other disciples? It depends on your definition of special. James is the first one to be martyred. That might make him special. Peter was martyred, killed upside down on a cross. But John wasn't martyred. He's actually the only apostle that didn't die a martyr's death. He was banished to the island of Patmos. And so we know that three witnesses, where two or three gathered, shall be done. Three witnesses, every good word will be established on those. So Jesus knows that. He's bringing three. Why these three? Does he love them more? Well, we don't really know. 
So while we want these mountaintop experiences ourselves, while we long to have these, while we long to see God in all his radiant glory, and it's good to pursue that, we also need to be just as thankful if we don't have a mountaintop experience. And that's a lot harder. This came up at Growth Group, actually, on Wednesday. I encourage you to go to a growth group if you haven't done that. Get into that community. This came up, this question, how different it would be if we could actually just live in for one minute and really experience heaven and know what it is, how life-changing that would be, how our perspective would be so different here on earth if we were able to know what heaven really were, if we could see this transfiguration of Jesus and actually know John 14, 1 and 2, this is where it came from. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So whether you're on that mount of the transfiguration or whether you're a disciple that wasn't up there, don't let your hearts be troubled. In times of trouble, rest in heaven. Know that that mountaintop experience will come. It's heaven that we rest in in times of trouble because trouble only happens on earth anyway. So, disciple of Jesus, it's good to climb the mountain with Jesus and pursue this mountaintop experience. Be thankful when he reveals his glory to you. But even when he doesn't reveal his glory to you, you still need to be thankful. Seeing God and his glory will help you in your times of trouble. So what do these three witnesses see, verses 2 and 3? He was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Jesus was transfigured. The Greek word here, metamorphao, is only used three other times in the New Testament. The other time is in the account of Mark, he uses metamorphao. And then the other times are Romans 12.2 and 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let's look at Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our mind is to metamorphao, the same word as Christ's transfiguration on the mountain. Our mind is to transfigure just like that, to be a radiant reflection of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, how do we even do this? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So where does this metamorphao come from? It comes from God, just as Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, and the glory of God shone forth through Jesus, through his face. So our minds should be changed. And that's what we're talking about this morning. We're learning from Scripture. That's what learning from Scripture is all about, transforming our mind. Yes, we seek the mountaintop, but we also seek the transformation of our mind that comes from God. We all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. We behold the same glory of Jesus that the law and the prophets behold. That's why we see Moses and Elijah Elijah here. Moses, the law, Elijah representing the prophets. They are talking to the culmination of the redemptive story that God brought to earth, Jesus. This leads us to the second section, Peter's response and God's reaction to it. Peter just can't ever keep quiet. We see this time and time again. And I find comfort in this because I, like him, tend to speak before I think. And some of you are nodding your heads because you're like, yeah, I do that too. 
And some of you are nodding your heads because you're like, yeah, Philip, you'd definitely do that too. And it's true. But Peter does it again here. He sees the beauty of Jesus, and he's not resting in Jesus. Instead, he has to, instead he has to speak. And what does he say in verse 4? He wants to make some tents for Moses. What good are tents going to be for Moses and Elijah? They're really going to live on this earth now? Why is he talking? And in the middle of him talking, it says he's interrupted. God speaks over him. He says in verse 5, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Stop speaking. Listen to him. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this is what I want to meditate on a lot this morning. This is what I want to learn from this morning. I don't want us to do what I've often done in the past, and that's see something that might look confusing and brush it off, because I don't want to think about that. No, I want us to approach this head on. This right here, what we're looking at, what we're trying to grasp, is, a, is rooted in a theology of the Trinity. The infinite glory that is a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does this mean when God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? What does it mean that God is pleased with his son? What's the difference between God and the son and the father and the Holy Spirit? Do we know that? Do we know that we can't just interchange these whenever we want? Because they are distinct. They are different. Do we realize that the Trinity cannot be described like water? The Trinity is not water with three states because three states cannot all exist in the same form. So it's not water. It's not like anything we can imagine. So I want us this morning to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, and that is going to happen with a right understanding of the Trinity. I've talked about core beliefs in our faith before, conviction issues. The Trinity is one of these issues that is a conviction issue that a lot of people have no idea about. Even Christians have no idea about the Trinity Understanding that God is the Father, is the Son, is the Holy Spirit. The three are distinct from one another, but together are still God. And they've been around since God has been around. Before time existed, before anything was created, they've been there. This idea of the Trinity in itself, I think, proves God's existence. Because there's no way a human mind could make this up. And even if you did make it up, why would you share it? Because you look crazy. This is hard to grasp, what we're talking about this morning. How can the Bible say that God is pleased with his son? How can we say that God is love? How can we say that God loves his son with pleasure and delight? A lot of theology and thoughts of the Trinity have stemmed from uh, what we've learned from Jonathan Edwards. You can write these names down. Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, uh, more recently John Piper, Tim Keller, Brian Pummel, I'll throw in there. And I've listened and read so much from all of them, that I don't even know who I'm quoting anymore. So my work cited today, everything is it's just God. God gave them these words, and so I'm citing God. But I'm giving you those names so that you can research more fully into it. I suggest researching into Brian Pummel. He's very close by, which is one reason why he can raise his hand. But we are learning about the Trinity this morning. Because we exist to worship God for who God really is, not who we want God to be. A wrong view of the Trinity or a denial of Jesus as being a part of the triune God has created many different sects and many different religions, really. This past week, being at Hiram, where I work, there's a youth conference going on right now there for the Latter-day Saints. Hundreds of Mormons come to Hiram every summer. And every summer, I 
see all of them, and I wonder what they're learning. I ask myself, what, I wonder what they're learning, because I've had some conversations with uh, the Latter-day Saints before. And one of my conversations that went along the lines of this, they told me that Jesus died for my sins, and the only way I can go to heaven is to believe in Jesus. And I said, yeah, that's what I believe. So tell me the differences between these religions. They didn't want to do it. They refused to do it. They said there's no difference. I said there is actually a difference. They just didn't want to talk about it. So I wonder how often do people just share part of Jesus without having a true, full understanding of the Trinity? And we need this understanding of the Trinity. It changes how we live. It changes our relationships. It changes how we think, how we act, how we interact with one another. And so they often share their faith, sharing only parts of Jesus without a proper view of the nature and essence of God. They believe that Jesus is literally the Son of God, so that Jesus came from God, not that Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9 is ignored. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Whole fullness of deity, that must mean that Jesus has been around since before creation. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. But there's still a distinction. There's a difference. But they don't believe that. They don't want to believe that Jesus is God. But yet they'll still say that God is love. But that's not possible. You can't say that God is love without a triune God, without multiplicity in the Godhead. Here's why. Since God has been around since before creation... The only way that God can be love is if there is multiplicity within God. Without multiplicity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, then there is a unipersonal God waiting for something or someone to be created so that they can then show love. If God is unipersonal, he cannot show love to anything until something has been created. So therefore, power comes before love with a unipersonal God. A unipersonal God, power creates a race of beings, and now he has their love, and only then can he show love to them. So love comes later, and that means when the world began, there was no love. In this scenario, God is not love. Love is simply peripheral of God after he created earth. Love is not the essence of God in a unipersonal God, and there's no community within God, if it's unipersonal. This leads to individualism. The most important thing in this scenario would be power and my own rights, and this justifies selfishness, which we talked about last week, which we want to get away from. And this is what makes Christianity unique. And this is our practical implication of the Trinity. We could go really deep into a lot of this. I don't want it to be a lecture. I would like Brian to give a lecture. Come to Growth Group Wednesday night. But it's not a lecture today. We have a very practical implication when we have a better understanding of the Trinity. Are you ready? Our practical implication is this. If the world was created by a triune God, then relationships of love is what your life is really about because we were created in God's image. 
I'll say that again. If this world is created by a triune God, then relationships of love is what your life is really about because we were created in the image of God. The idea of God existing as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit can be looked at. It's often described as a dance. We can't just grasp this easily, but one way we're going to try to look at it this morning is as a dance. Each one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, seeking nothing of themselves, only the will of the others. There's absolutely no selfishness. They don't do anything for themselves. They're constantly dynamic. They live in perfect community with one another. If I live selfishly, then what I want, what I desire, and what I want to do revolves around me. Yes, sure, I'll give some money to the homeless as long as it makes me feel good, so I'll stay stagnant, and I'll do things. I'll have other things revolve around me. Think about it orbiting around me. I'll only do things that help and benefit myself. But that keeps me static. That's bringing everything to me, and I'm not dancing. I'm standing still. So within God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who've been around since before creation, since before time began, they never desired anything but the desires of the others in perfect community. The Holy Spirit only desired what the Father and the Son desire, and the Son only desires what the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Father, only the Spirit, and the Son. And so, since they are not pulling towards themselves and creating something to orbit around them, since they are not being the center of their own universe, they are then going to the others. They're dancing. So now the Son moves towards the Father, towards the Spirit, as they move towards the Son, towards the Father. And it's this dance that's created as they orbit around each other in perfect community. And if I'm going to say that God is love, then there must be multiplicity to God who is around since before time began. A triune God gives an explanation as to why God can be love. From the beginning of time, God has been in this dance. He has been and he will be for eternity. Perfect love, perfect joy, perfect delight, perfect community between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Love is not just a peripheral. It is then the essence of God and who God is. God is a community of persons knowing and loving one another in this selfless dance that has taken place and will take place forever. And here's what it means. If we then are created in the image of God, then we too are designed for community and love and delight. And how do you do that? How do you get into the dance talked about this last week. You lose yourself to find yourself. You die to yourself. God is telling us to do what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done for eternity. You're never going to get a sense of yourself by standing still and being selfish and wanting everything to orbit around you. You'll never know who you are unless you're willing to surrender your life and not live selfishly. You'll never experience the dance that God has invited you to. And how do I know God invited you to this dance? Because Jesus died. We saw in verse 5, God is delighted in his son. God can look at the son who lives in perfect love and community with the Father and the Holy Spirit and delight in the son. God delights in the son because he's perfect. Does that make God vain? That he can look upon himself and be delighted and well-pleased? No, that does not make God vain. Here's why. If you stood in front of a mirror, you looked at yourself, and you said, I am well-pleased. That would be vain. 
because you were made for something so much bigger and so much greater than what you'll see when you look in that mirror. As we read, from one degree of glory to another, in his likeness, if you stood in front of a mirror and took complete delight in your own image, you would demean and depreciate and diminish and you would disgrace the infinitely worthy image of God and his son who was designed for your joy. You would be an idolater. So how do we keep God from being an idolater? You must affirm that God infinitely delights in himself above all things. You must affirm that God infinitely delights in himself above all things. This is the essence of righteousness. Put your affection in a worthless thing, then you are unrighteous. You're a sinner. Put your value and worth in Jesus, who is perfect in the eyes of God. Hide yourself in Jesus, and you are made righteous. God receives glory when we delight in the righteousness of his Son. So why would a God like this create this world anyway? He doesn't need worship He doesn't need love. He doesn't need anything from his creation because he is complete in and of himself. He's not unipersonal, so he doesn't need to create something just to then show love to something. So why did he create us? It was not to get anything, but it was just to give his joy, this overabundant joy that comes from this perfect unity of the Trinity. It's so abundant that he wants to give that to us. He's inviting us into this dance. If you glorify God, if you center your life around God, if you glorify Jesus, if you center your life around Jesus, if you find Jesus beautiful for who he is, then you will step into the dance. This is what you were made for. It's not just a cognitive belief. You were made to put everything in God, to obey him unconditionally. Are you in this dance or do you just believe that God exists without a proper view of the Trinity? Are you in the dance or do you only pray when you're in trouble? To be a Christian means that you live your life based on what Jesus did for you. Father, accept me not because of anything that I've done, but only because of what Jesus has done for me. Jesus moved for us by dying on the cross. It's the first step of the dance. When we repent, when we ask him into our lives, That's us now not being centered on ourselves, but being centered on Christ. That's stepping back into this dance now. And then Jesus justifies us even in our sin. And that dance continues. And then we in turn obey God and continue this dance. Rather than being selfish and stagnant, we become selfless and dynamic in the Trinity What a beautiful wedding we just had a couple nights ago. I'm so happy they're here today. And it was a great time. I have realized, and it was said in the speech, that David's smile lights up a room. And it's totally true. When I just picture him in my head, I see his smile. It's really good. Look, it's already lighting it up. But I'm telling you, on his wedding day, that smile, it literally never stopped. I don't know if you realize that. He never stopped smiling on his wedding day. He was so, I think, delighted to have had this day, to be enjoined in unity with his bride. And that's just hardly a taste of what Jesus feels for us. We are his bride. He has come for us, and his smile doesn't stop when he sees you. He delights in you. So you continue the dance by obeying him. 
This dance only happens because God is in and of himself, the triune God, complete. He is love, he is joy, he is everything. And this is confirmed here in verse 5 as we see God say he is pleased in his son. Listen to him. He is the fulfillment and the embodiment of the law, Moses. He's the fulfillment and the embodiment of everything the prophets said, Elijah. The natural reaction to this news, the natural reaction to when we truly understand what Jesus did for us, verse 6. They fell on their faces and were terrified. When we see what Jesus has done for us, when we see him for who he is, we might fall on our faces while we're on that mountaintop, while we're having that mountaintop experience, taking that selfless step, that selfless dance towards Jesus. And then he comes back and he says, rise and have no fear. They saw no one but Jesus only. It continues. He's the only one that you need to see this morning. Maybe you've had your eyes focused on yourself. Maybe you've had your eyes focused on the law or self-righteousness. Maybe you've had your eyes focused on the things of the world. But please open your eyes and just see nothing but Jesus. The last section, verses 9 to 13, we see the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. The mountaintop experience has come to an end. Just as they do this, they're coming down the mountain. We eventually, too, have to come down the mountain, even when we have these mountaintop experiences. And it's important to bring Jesus with us. Jesus is continuing to train his disciples even after they leave this mountaintop experience. He's continuing to talk about what they experienced on that mountain. It's a good lesson for us as well, that when we come back from a mountaintop experience, we talk about it. We forget things easily as people. We've talked about this. The best way to not forget is to talk about it. I like to see Jesus training his disciples here. They ask him a question about Elijah. Jesus gives them enough information that they can understand that he's speaking of John the Baptist. As we said last week, understanding is a big characteristic of discipleship, and we're seeing it lived out right here. All of this in review, again, for our application this morning. The first section, one to three, we learned that God has given us these mountaintop experiences, and it's good to seek those, even if we don't always get them. Apply that. Seek that mountaintop experience. Every single day, be alone with God. Yes, we need that. But also, get away. Go to a mountain. Go to the beach. Go to a quiet place. Go somewhere where you don't usually go. Seek nothing but God. The second section, four to eight, we learn how God is pleased in his son. Creation and redemption is a project of the triune God. Has been around since time began, will always be. This applies to our lives because we are made in the image of God so we can exist to love and be in community because this has been and always will be the essence of God. So since that's the essence of God, what does that mean for us? Know that you won't come to know a God, a triune God, as an individual. You need to be in a community. If we're going to grow as people in community with one another, we have to be there. If we're going to understand a triune God that is community in himself, we need to be in community ourselves. So do that. Be in community with one another. Maybe you can't make a growth group. That's fine. Call somebody up. Talk about God. Talk about Jesus. Talk about your life. Be in community. Don't try to live this life alone. We also saw the disciples fall on their faces, praising God. 
We need to learn this. We can apply this. Our prayer life should be full of praise to God. Not always just thanking him for what he's done for us, but also praising him for who he is. And knowing what we know of the Trinity, if you have not yet started the dance, another application point from the Trinity, please start that dance today. I'll be in the back. I just wait by the, by the doors every time after, this, after the service ends. When you guys leave, please talk to me. Maybe you have already started this dance. You want to tell me about how good the dance has been. Maybe you're going through a tough time. I'll pray with you. I've stood there and just prayed with people before. But if you have not started that dance, come talk to me. I'll tell you more about how I started my dance. I'll talk you through how you can start yours and how beautiful that can be. So if you have not received Jesus yet this morning, that's one of the application points we take from a better understanding of God and the Trinity. Finally, in that last section, 9 to 13, we reiterated the importance of growing in our understanding as a disciple. This happens from hearing the words of the Lord. So our application point, dig into the Bible. Get into the Word every single day. It's not easy. And if you don't do it, tell somebody so that they can spur you on and encourage you. But get into the Word. We need to hear God's Word. 66 love letters he wrote to us in the Bible. Let's read the words that God has given to us. It'll change your life. Let's pray. God, we want to know you for who you really are. Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, thank you for being in perfect community, for being in perfect love, for being in perfect joy. So abundant that you now give that to us, that you have reached out to us and that we can partake in this dance that you have been in forever. God, help us know you better. Help us leave today and talk about what we've learned. Help us leave today and get into the Bible. Help us leave today and praise you better during prayer. Help us leave today and have a mountaintop experience that will motivate us and spur us on in our faith and our growth and our knowledge of you. God, we thank you for everybody that is here this morning. We thank you for everybody that's not. And we pray that we can be your messengers in Cleveland this week. We love you, Jesus, and it's your name we pray. Amen.